Good morning. This is our uh, class, our continuing class on marriage and relationships. It's Sunday morning, August 4th. Welcome to August. We're going to continue our work in a handout called Wisdom for Relational Conflict. If you missed some of the past classes and you need handouts, I tend to leave them behind. There's some over here if you'd like to take a look at those. Let's offer our time to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, how good, how wonderful to gather together in this free country under your grace with confidence of your love for us because of Jesus. We belong to him. He is ours, we are his. And we honor and worship you this morning, Lord Jesus, as the one through whom we have reconciliation with a holy and a just God. You've given us the ministry of reconciliation, not only calling lost sinners to yourself through our words and deeds, but working at reconciling our relationships within the body of Christ. How important. So please take and use this time, use this text in James chapter 4 to teach us, to help us, to enlighten us, to mold our hearts, to direct us, all for your glory and for the good of your people. In Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. The handout, we are on page 2. At the top it says context, and we're looking at number 2 in context, the broader context for the passage from James chapter 4 is God's plan for the church and for the family, his desire that his love for the church will be mirrored mirrored in our relationships. And God is proving by his grace and in our relationships that he's rescuing us from the ravages of sin, not just individually, but corporately. We saw last week from Ephesians 4. Yes, sir? Can you help me where we are exactly? Uh, It says at the top of the page, A, context. Let's see. Um, there you go. Oh, uh, I'm working from a different one. I'm so sorry. I'm working from my notes, which, which looks different than yours. My bad. Thank you. So look at where it says A, context, one, two, three. Oh, down here at the bottom. Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Thank you. Yes. Uh, no, that's my bad. Mine looks different than yours. And we saw last week that God, uh, through the Holy Spirit, gives us unity. Our calling is to be diligent to preserve that unity in the bonds of peace. And we said, well, what won't work here, here's a few things that won't work, promoting peace in the body. What won't work is self-promotion, where I want people to look at me, be impressed with what I know, what I can do, etc. Self-promotion is a body unity destroyer. Self-absorption consumed with the thought, why aren't I getting more credit, more attention? Self-exaltation, the reasons I might conjure up in my imagination to feel superior to you, and or self-protection, why I won't let you in, I feel the need to hide my shame. This would be an extreme conflict of order. So these, all these selves detract from the unity we're called to preserve by the spirit and the bonds of peace. Do you want to comment on any of those from your own experience, your own frustrations, your own battle with indwelling sin? These are just a few of the selves. Promotion, absorption, exaltation, protection. Do these help body life? No. 
They hurt marriage, they hurt relationships, they hurt life in the body. So we need to have a church where we're frank and honest and transparent to say, I struggle with these. I struggle with these. And if left to myself, these things in me would destroy my, my influence in the body of my relationships. A healthy marriage is one where two people wake up, throw their feet on the floor, and say, Lord, if left to myself, my sin will ruin this marriage. And with that thought, we run to Jesus, the source of grace. Jesus always welcomes sinners. He welcomes the desperate. He never turns aside the weak. And we ask for grace, and it flows in, and that grace starts moving in us the compassion, the kindness, the patience, the sensitivity, the love that is necessary for that other person. You can't get those things that make relationships work anywhere else in the universe. They only come through Jesus. So Christ wants to be at the center of your relationship, just like he's the one that walked Eve down the aisle in the garden to Adam. The Lord brought her to the man. In all accounts, that's a pre-incarnation theophany, theophany of Jesus Christ. Okay, so these things don't work. Let's look at our text, and then we'll go look at uh, number three in terms of the context. Well, no, let's just do three, then we'll look at the text, because we're going to start to unpack the text. <clears throat> the third piece of the context is that the Christian family can make no positive impact on the culture when it's in conflict with itself. Now, you see this in pickup basketball. If you're on a pickup basketball game, and the guys on the other team are bickering and fighting and wanting to pass through the bar and wanting you trying harder and you didn't box out or whatever it is, you know you have an advantage for your team when the other team has inner conflict, right? It never works. Really good coaches keep that stuff from not happening. Really good coaches put an end to that. You don't, con you don't have conflict on this team, right? Okay. So Jesus said, a house divided cannot stand. That's when he was accused of doing miracles by Satan. <laughs> the most absurd thing in the world. Jim Elliot, the missionary, the Aka Indians, prayed that God would prosper him so that his life would be an exhibit of the value of knowing Christ. Is that a prayer we're willing to offer? May my life, in word and deed, be an exhibit of the value of knowing Jesus. And of course, Jesus came to make reconciliation with all things, particularly us, and the Father. And it doesn't end there. It starts there and bleeds out into reconciliation between human beings. What other worldview can bring that to pass? When really, when men and women left to themselves, somebody tends to ascend to the place with an iron fist and just rules over people to get them to do what they want. Lord of the Flies, great example. When human beings are left to their own devices. Okay, so we're going to look at the problem and the answer. Let me read the text for us. <clears throat> this is one of the most potent texts in the New Testament for wisdom for relational conflict. James 4, 1 to 10. Were there any handouts left outside? No? All right, so I need someone to share. There we go. You may go run tomorrow. If you're able. Sorry about that. Here's our text, beloved. James says, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have. 
so you commit, you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Yet your laughter be turned into mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. <clears throat> okay, that's pretty good stuff, isn't it? It's practical, it gets at the source and the root of things. So let's look at B, the problem and the answer. Notice how verse 1 explicitly asks, what is the source or where is the poison? So what's the presenting problem according to verses 1 and 2? Envy expressing itself in quarrels, conflicts, and fights. So I'm picturing this as a tree. The root is envy, and envy has specific fruits. Quarrels, fights, and conflicts. So generally it's not a, a sin that stays to itself. It's a sin that affects relationships. It has effects. The, uh, the problem is envy expressing itself in quarrels, conflicts, and fights. His answer, which we'll get to later, is in verse 10, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. In other words, relationships aren't ultimately about you. If you make them about you and not God's glory, something's going to go amiss. Now, how am I innately wired when I wake up in the morning to make everything about whom? Me. And that's the way we're wired. And without intentional, strategic battling that, fighting that, <coughs> our souls are going to get in the way, consciously or unconsciously. It's not about you. It's about God's glory. And until we remind ourselves of that fact, daily, moment by moment, we're destined to get in the way of what God is doing. Now, I think that's a very hard place to find because sin is tenacious, it's deceptive, it's relentless. I'll talk a little bit about that this, this uh, Sunday evening tonight in my meditation at our communion service, Battling and Dwelling Sin. So how do we get there? James is saying you've got to understand what's happening inside of you. You can't just deal with relational conflict at the surface level. You've got to look inside. And he says the surface issue are quarrels. That seems to be chronic. You keep having disagreements with people. And conflicts, you have battles. The surface conflict is envy, and that raises what question? And I want you to answer this. What do we tend to envy in other people? And can you give an example where you realized you were envious? We're all sinners. <laughs> we all struggle with sin. Is there an example? Yes, Hannah? Okay, thank you. Envious of how well God has promoted other people in their career. 
Very common thing, right? Very common. Uh, pastors suffer from this unsufferably. We're constantly comparing ourselves with the pastors whose churches are bigger, whose budgets are stronger, etc. Church, I've planted a couple churches in my lifetime, and you're constantly wondering uh, how come this isn't growing. I want to have a big church like everybody else. So I can agree. I can identify with him. What else do we envy in others? Money, power, fame, their possessions. Good, that's right. <clears throat> Anybody walk into someone's house is a lot nicer than years ago. Wow, I wish I lived here. My life would be better if I had all these resources. How many of us do that? Yeah, yeah. And it kind of doesn't matter how big our, our house is. My house is plenty big for Janice and me. It's very ample. But my brother was showing me pictures of a friend's house he has, and in North Carolina, the thing was a mansion with a three-car garage and had a pull-out bag and stunning windows and everything was just absolutely gorgeous. Right out of a TV show. And did I covet that a little bit? A little. I don't know what I would do with all that space. In my, clear, in my rational mind, I would say, I don't need all that space. And plus, I'm going to be accountable to God for what I do with all that money. <laughs> right. But my house plenty big for me. Come see us in Lynchburg. You're always welcome. We've got room for you. Your own private bathroom, incidentally. What else do we envy in people? Certain abilities. Gifts. Gifts, abilities. Boy, that person really sing well. They're a really good administrator. They're really good on that musical instrument, right? Their appearance, their station in life. Maybe we envy how attractive their spouse is. Who knows? Lots of things. All right, we could go... On and on and on. And I put on my list wealth, spiritual gifts, relationships, appearance, knowledge. That person knows a lot more. Incidentally, if you're uh, envious of somebody's knowledge of the Bible, have you ever had that envy? Is there something you can do about that? Read the Bible. Read the Bible. <laughs> Study the Bible. Yeah. Uh, come to class like you're coming to class. There, that's something you, I can't do anything about my looks. I can do something about my Bible knowledge, right? <laughs> Well, brush my teeth, maybe, comb my hair. <laughs> so this, what does this lead, lead to? I don't like what you have, what you give me, what you don't give me, and I've made it all about whom? Me. me. I've made the relationship about me. Uh, and, and James says, as a result of not having these things, you're killing. Now, some commentators take that literally. I don't. It's just really hard to imagine that there are believers uh, in the churches to which James is writing that are killing each other out of envy. I, I look at this killing and the, uh, as the idea of withholding what is due. So I'm either loving you, giving you what I owe you, or I'm killing you by not giving what I owe you. Okay. Um, so what is it we will kill for, guys? What will we kill for? What is it we want from other people? We crave their respect. respect. What else? Affirmation. Affirmation. Good. Recognition. Sometimes we want their submission. We want to control them. We want them to serve us. 
And when we're doing that, we've made it all about who? Me. And so I can't love you if I've made the relationship about terms that suit me, because I've still got to focus on myself. So if I need your affirmation, I need your respect, I need your approval, I need your control, we don't have love here. It's just all selfish, Mike. Love is about looking out and giving that person what you believe they need in that moment. And it certainly is about, isn't about promoting God's glory. I had an a, a, a older Christian gentleman tell me years ago, Mike, I don't think you love people as much as you think you do. And he didn't unpack it, unfortunately. And it would have been good if Pastor Lahia unpacked that for me and said, what I observe is that you, you're, you're warm and engaging with people, but I sense that what that's about is you wanting them to like you. And let's, let's go to work on a plan battling that and addressing that. that. That part didn't happen. What he said was true. And again, I'm responsible for the Lord to take that and you know, work with that in, in my own sanctification. But, but I really, I'm, uh, that was a very helpful thing to hear Initially, anyway. I, I don't love you if, if I'm unwilling to do what's best for you. And that might be say the hard thing. Do the hard thing. Every parent said, as before they're doing corporal punishment for the kid, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. No kid ever believed it, but every parent knew it that way. Okay. So what's the opposite of envy? What's the opposite of envy? Godwardly, you're, you're not envying if you have what? Gratitude. Gratitude. Look at the gifts you've given me. I want to use those. I want to seek my pleasure in the Lord alone. I'm a leaky, broken vessel, desperately in need of grace. Let that grace keep flowing, flowing. Healthy Christians believe in the morning all the grace that was accrued in them yesterday has leaked out and they need a fresh filling. They need a fresh filling of grace. That's why it's helpful to go to the Lord in the morning and have a time with Him where you read His Word and you worship Him and you get filled afresh with grace because without that grace, you'll move in your own flesh, your own power, your own spirit, according to your own ambitions to try to get what you think you want. And God has a way of sorting all of that out. The worship of God sets everything in its right perspective. Oh, this is about your glory, not mine. That's, that's a good thing. That's why I need the Lord every morning. What are the fruits of envy? Manward, uh, uh, I'm sorry. Um, manwardly, the, the opposite of envy is giving other people loving service, serving them. The fruits of envy, manwardly, are we're at war with each other. We quarrel. And again, here's, here's the envy is the tree trunk, and you have these specific fruits up here. And James is going to show us it's not enough just to try to um, uh, peel the fruit and get at what's going on here. You're going to have to run down the trunk into what's going down at a heart level, which, which we're getting to. So the fruits of envy, envy manwardly are, and towards of others, are we're at war with each other, and God really, we're praying with wrong, wrong motives, he says. You're asking, but so you can spend these things on your pleasures. You're, tr you're going to prayer to try to solve the problem of your discontentment, your ingratitude, and your grumbling. You're asking for things God 
really shouldn't give you because he gave them, you'd, you'd continue in your discontentment. Right? Lord, give me that Cadillac. Yeah, right? And then you get the Cadillac. What do you want next after a little while? You, you're not going to be content with that. I remember when Janice and I, after seminary, we were privileged to get a little piece of land outside of Charlottesville. And we, we built this house through the gifts and graces of our parents, without whom we never would have had a home. Thank the Lord. And I was very content with it initially. And then I thought, oh, we need to put on a deck. Oh, we need to pay the driveway. Oh, we need to put in some French doors here and expand this. Oh, you know, it just was never enough. Now, maybe I'm betraying one of my besetting sins, which is discontentment. But can you relate to this? It just, what is ever enough? What's the root cause, he says? In verse 2, you lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and you cannot obtain. This is a really important Greek word. He's saying, go right down to here. What you see in your heart is epithemia. That's the Greek word, lust. It's translated lust in the New American Standard. Uh, some translations, strong desires. This is a compound word. That thumia simply means desires. When you put the prefix epi in front of this word or any Greek word, this prefix simply uh, functions to strengthen that thing. So this becomes inordinate <coughs> desires, over desires, lusts. It's anything you desire, food, sex, peace. Security, money, whatever it is, fill in the blank. Our desires in and of themselves are given by God. Sin or idolatry is when you make a desire the thing that you must have. So epithemia. We'll see this in the sermon in the text from Ephesians 4 where Paul talks about don't walk as the Gentiles walk and the futility of their mind, darken their understanding, excluded from the life of God. They've given themselves over to sensuality with a continual lust for more. <clears throat> Sin never says enough. It never says enough. The only way to satisfy the, the cravings of indwelling sin is to crave Jesus. It's the only way to, to uh, battle those things. Something greater. There's a, a famous Puritan who wrote a book called The uh, Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And his point was, the only power in the universe to, to quell the affection for things is a greater desire for Jesus. The expulsive power of a new affection. This is essentially what Paul is saying in Romans 8 when he says, if you walk by the uh, flesh, you'll carry out the desires of the flesh. If you walk in the spirit, you need to be putting sin to death, mortification, and living under the spirit. Vivification, the Puritans used to call it. Mortification, killing sin, but that's not enough. Vivification, living under the spirit. If by the spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. A little bit more about that again tonight in the, the meditation and communion. So he says that's the root cause. Your pleasures waging war within your members. Look at Romans 7.23. When Paul uh, explores autobiographically his conversion, he begins to talk about his new relationship to sin. He says, somebody, when you get to Romans 7.23, somebody read it for us. 
but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Thank you. So he talks about when I sin, it's not I, but sin which indwells me. So as he looks at this, Paul looks at himself, he sees a man whose heart is in the grip of Jesus, but there's still indwelling sin that wants to make him captive to sin. But we're not slaves to sin. We're not captives to sin. That's one of the beauties and glories of the gospel. You no longer have to sin. So on the strength of that, I said in my sermon last week, I don't know if you caught this, it was kind of just an aside, that I think the sins of believers are worse than the sins of unbelievers. The sins of unbelievers, Paul says, remember in 1 Timothy 1, uh, in, I, uh, in ignorance, basically, I walked in ignorance against the Lord. I know better. I've been set free from sin. Jesus has lavished grace upon me. He's made me aware of his mercies. He's given me his spirit. He's taught me many, many things. So my sins are sins of, against the love of the Father. Paul says, I acted ignorantly in unbelief. My sins are, I'm sitting in the lap of the Father through the death of his Son. The Father basking, just delighting in me, and I'm slapping him in his face. I, I, it's just horrible. I remember hearing a speaker one time preach in my church, and he's, he described the sins of believers as hating God. And I'm like, no, no, that couldn't be. That's too jarring. That when you sin, you're hating God. And I really had to think about that. Ponder that. So ponder that. Think about that. So, that, so James is saying, let's go way down. Here's the fruits, quarreling, fighting. That seems to be the fruit of this thing called envy. But go down. What's going on? What's going on in the heart? is you have, you're being ruled by your epithemias, your over-inordinate desires. That's what's going on. So every day, beloved, you woke up, you know you woke up today at war with sin. Sin's at war with you. There's only two kinds of people in the world. Those who are at peace with God, and consequently at war with sin, or those who are at peace with sin and at war with God. If you're in Christ, you're at peace with God, and consequently at war with sin. Sin's at war with you. It wants to control you. It wants to enslave you. It wants you to do what it wants you to do. Okay, we no longer have, we are no longer under that taskmaster. It's not our taskmaster. We're slaves of Christ now. Bob Dylan said, you gotta serve somebody. So look at the, um, okay, we're down to C here. You're, Pleasures waging war within your members. When my desires rule me, I look at others in one of two ways. If you're in my way, I'm angry. If you cooperate, I use you. Have you experienced that? Have you been the object of that? You sense that I'm in someone, some, someone's way and they're angry with me? Or this person's manipulating me to get me to cooperate with them? These are good things, good discussions to have husbands and wives. Do you feel manipulated? Do you feel like I'm trying to control you? Words, lack of words, action, lack of action. We can't judge each other's motives, although when you've been married for 41 years like we have, you kind of know what the motives are. <laughs> you know that person that well. So what's the progression? It seems like Paul, uh, James is uh, te te teasing out a progression where you start down here with the epithemias. I need. 
That turns into a demand. I must have. I will. An expectation. You should. Disappointment. You didn't. Punishment. Because you didn't, I will. So there's almost always a relational component that's negative if our epithemias are out of control. We make people pay. It might be being overbearing and angry at them. It might be withdrawing and giving them the silent treatment. I used to do that. Give my wife the silent treatment. How big of me. I was making her pay for something. It's awful. It's worse than awful. You know what God calls it? Spiritual adultery. God, he says, oh, we got something even worse than this. You've made a lover out of something that's not your true lover. Not your true lover. Jesus is our, is our true lover. God calls it spiritual adultery. So we either relate to God as a loving father or a divine waiter. Is he bringing you everything you want? Can you, are you ordering these things off the menu? And God isn't, you, are you mad at God because he didn't give you what you want? Or is he a loving father into whose hands you commit all of your plans, all of your being? So what do friends do? They make alliances, they make demands, they share values, they spend time together. And I've teased out for you on the handout, I think what the world's values are, do I have that? The world's values, that list those, the five Ps. Yes. Somebody read those. Read the first one for us. Again, we're trying to say, okay, if God says don't be a friend of the world, that's spiritual adultery. We're friends of God. We're at peace with God. Father, Jesus is your brother, your older brother. We're friends with God. We've been reconciled to God. Nothing to prove, nothing to lose. Friendship with God. Um, he says you can't be friends with the world at the same time. Jesus says you can't love two masters. You can't love money and me. You either love the one and hate the other. If you love money, you may not consciously know this, you're hating God. There's only one power greater in the world to deliver from the love of whatever it is. Fill in the blank. Money, pleasure, approval, success. There's only one power. What is that? It's the love of God in Christ. So here's five examples of the world's values. First one, somebody read it for us. Possessions, security, and what I have. Okay, you're finding your security in what you have. God did a real number on Americans in 2008, didn't he? To shake that one up. I don't know if, how many, what that's been, 11 years, hasn't it? We had a catastrophic economic collapse in this country in 2008. And there's a lot of human reasons for it. But in terms of what God was saying to people in America, what do you think he was saying? Did God want people to wake up? If a hurricane blows through my neighborhood, does God want... Who's in control of the hurricane? God is. Ultimately, who's in control of the affairs of men? God is. What is God saying to people in 2008 in this country? Don't trust your possessions. Don't trust them. How many of you got up this morning, went to the fridge, got your breakfast, and said, give us this day our daily bread? I mean, I don't hardly ever do that. I just, if it's not in the fridge, it's at Kroger down the street. <laughs> oh, go on. You don't know what Kroger is? It's our equivalent of Giant. <laughs> the difference is the prices are cheaper in Virginia, so we load up in Virginia and bring it back here. <laughs> Put it in the fridge in our little half the apartment. Anyway, how often do we pray, give us a stay or daily bread? Okay, well, we're blessed. 
That's why we pray over a meal. Thank you for this food. A reminder, it's come from God's hand because he loves us. He is the father who delights to give us and feed us and protect us and clothe us. Oh man, think of the delight the father has in bringing you to this place this morning to encourage you, to fill you with the spirit, to give you the pleasure of finding glory and joy worshiping Jesus. That's what the father wants to do. All right, possessions. Anybody struggle with love for possessions? Honest? Am I, am I reticent to loan you my fill in the blank? Car? <laughs> Substance out of my bank account? Whatever. <clears throat> Prominence? Who, who, I'm sorry, somebody read that one for us. Prominence. Prominence, security in a place where I feel important. Okay. Some of you, the Lord has promoted in your work, or maybe as an athlete, an artist, a, ch a church officer. Okay. Do I do I draw my ultimate value from that? Very potentially. I know a, a, a church that's looking for a pastor. And uh, the elder that's helping the process is uh, seeking to minister to the pastor who he planted the church. He was there about 12 years. And he's saying, this is going to be hard on you because your identity is tied up in pastoring that church. No, no, it's not. I can tell you as a pastor, yes, it is. It's really hard for pastors to separate their identities from what they do. And maybe even for your job, being a mother or whatever. Very, very, very difficult. We make idols out of really good things. Next one, who would read that? Pleasure, comfort in things, sensuality, painlessness. Okay. Is it okay to long for painlessness? Pleasure? Of course, you were built for it. There wasn't any pain in the garden before the fall. Everything was pleasurable. Everything. Everything you looked at, experienced. What was the ultimate pleasure in the garden? The presence of God. And Adam and Eve said, sorry, this is what I want to say in my sermon in about an hour from now. Adam and Eve said, we, we can do it on our own terms much better than you set it up. What? All sin is insanity. All sin is irrational. All sin is a displacing of the glory of God and seeking an inferior glory. And that's often why we have all these struggles. All right, you make a friend yourself for the world, you're an enemy of God. Let's move along. Prowess, that significance from my intellect, my expertise, my wittiness, my spirituality. Prowess, and then place, a niche where you are in control. Why do we long for a place where we're in control? Why do we long for it? What were you made for? A world where you controlled everything. Adam and Eve had control over everything. They named the animals, even the scriptures, even the fish of the sea somehow they had control over. I think that's in Psalm 8. I was watching this um, little news clip years ago about uh, some men at Syracuse University who had this huge HO model railroad layout in, in, the, in some building there. I'm a model railroader, not of that quality, but I love model trains. And the reporter asked this question. There was a little bit of snideness to it, although you couldn't really tell, but it seems nice. She goes, why do you do this? Why do we make these whole realistic model railroad worlds. 
The guy's answer was, this is a world I can control. Do you long to be in a world where you can control things? Why? It's what you were created for. So just so 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 be careful that that the subtle movements of your life and your soul are always to a place where I'm secure because I can control this. And that's understandable. But it might be the Lord wants you to do what? Step out and trust Jesus. Trust Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Not look at the water and sink like Peter. So, what's the way home? It's grace received through repentance. And that's verses 7 to 10. They give us a vivid picture of promise-driven repentance. The umbrella concept over it all is uh, submission to God. And James teases out two things, the power and the process. James says it's impossible apart from the Holy Spirit's work. Verse 5, I'm going to, sorry, my outline says 7. That's wrong. It's verse 5. And this is a really good way to translate it. It reads kind of awkward in the ESV and the NESB. A very legitimate way to translate the Greek is, the spirit he calls to live in us envies intensely. So playing off our envying, producing quarrels, is the spirit envying, producing spiritual graces that help you deal with the quarrels. It's beautiful. So it raises the question, if the spirit he calls to live in us, that's a reference to what doctrine? The doctrine of regeneration. You have a new heart by the spirit. The spirit he calls to live in us envies intensely. What does the spirit envy for among us? What does he envy? What does he want? He wants us. He wants total possession of you. You living under his rule. That's Ephesians 5.18. Don't be drunk with wine. That's dissipation. But be filled with the Spirit. The contrast in those verses. What's dominating you? What's controlling you? When you're drunk, you're under the influence and control of alcohol. When you're filled with the Spirit, you're under the influence and control of the Holy Spirit. The question isn't how much of the Holy Spirit do you have? The question is how much of you does the Holy Spirit have? Does He control your thoughts, your heart, your ambitions, your goals, your dreams, your desires, your plans? Okay. So what, what are some things, beloved, that uh, apart from what Nate just said, that the Holy Spirit envies intensely for us? What's he want? I think house divided cannot stand. The Spirit wants to unify, unify us. Good. Christ-likeness. Produce Christ-likeness in us. Other-centeredness. Sacrificial love. Sacrificial giving, understanding, patience, the beauty of Christ. So we should ask the Spirit to change the way we relate to other people. When you see other people at their worst, is that going to happen? Sure. What is God setting before you? Among other things. How about a mirror that in his eyes, you're at least that bad? Yes? You know, you're, look, you don't have to deny that person's a mess. They're a train wreck. You don't have to deny that. You don't have to deny that they're hurting you. You don't have to deny that they're the source of quarrels and conflicts among you. They could be all of that. You don't have to deny objective assessment of things. But among other things, God is setting before you a mirror that if left to yourself, oh, I'd be so far worse than that. I'd be Hitler on steroids if left to myself. Now, I don't really believe that, but it's true. 
I believe I'm better than I really am, if left to myself. So, difficult people in your life are mirrors that would then drive you to Jesus and thank him for his grace, fall on him, ask him for mercy, and seek to be filled with the spirit who envies intensely to bring about in us the beauty of Christ. So now you know what love is. Love is a commitment to give your friend, your spouse, your children, that person with, you have, with whom you have conflict, love is a commitment to give them your best if even in the face of their worst. And where do we see that in human history? At the cross. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Christ's commitment to give us his best, forgiveness, in the face of our worst. We're nailing him there. We're spitting in his face. We're the soldiers punching him, blindfolding him, mocking, jeering, tearing his back to shreds with a cat of nine tails. That's me. And he's saying, forgive them, Father. Don't know what they're doing. That's why in my Bible reading, my personal Bible reading, I start with the Psalms. You know me, I read the chapter, Proverbs 4 this morning. Anybody? Proverbs 4? Anybody? Oh, it's not the Proverbs class. You don't have to say that. <laughs> <laughs> and then I read somewhere in the Old Testament right now in Genesis because I finished Malachi right a few weeks ago. And then I want to be Gospels, and some are non-Gospels. My non-Gospels is First John, and I'm always somewhere in the Gospels. Because what that does is every 30 days, what am I confronted with? The details of Christ's crucifixion. And it just, it just never ceases to hit you in the gut what Jesus went through. It should be that way. So I'd encourage you in your Bible reading, make sure you're in the Gospels. I mean, the whole Bible's about Jesus. We believe that here at Wallace. The Gospels are Jesus in technicolor, right? And, and you're monthly confronted with the, go, the, gory, the goriness of the cross. All right. Finally, what's the process? James gives you three commands attending the promises. Resist the devil. What's the promise? He'll flee from you. Draw near to God. What's the promise? He'll draw near to you. What a promise. How? With heartfelt, emotional grieving over your sin, cleansing and weeping, he says. And then third, humble yourself. What's the promise? You humble yourself. He'll exalt you. Okay? And the only place to be humbled is the cross. All right. So we'll start to finish the class on mirrors next week and we'll dive into Ephesians 5. Right, let's pray. Thank you for your precious sons and daughters, Lord. Thank you for their interest in you, your word, healthy relationships. Would you have mercy on us and bring to pass uh, these graces uh, that it would be said of us, we indeed are friends with God, not of the world. Deliver us from these evils, vices, and bring us to yourself where we might find the ultimate joy. You promise that in your presence there's fullness of joy at your right hand pleasures forever. Give us an addiction for that. In Jesus' name.